Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. I'm Carlos Chapman, your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is the importance of Black journalists. And my guest today is a journalist and expert on the matter, Marlon Walker. Marlon, would you please introduce yourself? Sure, and thanks for having me. Um, Again, my name is Marlon Walker. I am the managing editor local for the Marshall Project, which is a criminal justice-focused nonprofit newsroom. It's been in existence about eight years. Previously to that, I was the executive and state editor for Gannett, which runs newspapers in Mississippi or across the country. But I ran the newspapers in Mississippi, including the state paper, the Clarion Ledger. I've been a journalist for 17 years full-time, 2005 graduate of Florida A&M University. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm very excited about this discussion today. And I would like to start with a simple question. Why is it important to have Black journalists? Because without one Black journalist, uh, the second Black journalist wouldn't exist. I I think more often than not, you find people who kind of are siloed and will look for talent in the the areas that they live and breathe and work and play. And oftentimes we're not there. So, you know, one, it's just to make sure that we continue to be seen and represented in this industry. And two, it's because the voice and, and the representation that we, you know, bring to the table is the fact that there are stories that we do every day that somebody may not see because it's not in their, you know, in their their background, their backyard, the areas where they frequent. Now, you mentioned, you know, there wouldn't be a second without the first. Um, you know, what do the numbers of Black journalists look like and, and how have they changed over the years? So first, it's hard to tack down what those numbers look like, I'll tell you. So for a long time, we had an organization that's now known as the News Leaders Association that did a, an annual diversity census to talk about the the diversity in newsrooms across the country, uh, specifically print newsrooms, print and digital. People don't respond. And so a lot of times (laughs) it's guesswork. At at a point, it was believed that seven to 8% of our workforce was black. But now, you know, when you've got more than a thousand newsrooms across the country and maybe 10 to 15% of those people show up to do the diversity work, you don't really know. Uh, you know, so I, I'd say it's somewhere probably still around seven to eight percent. It may be a little higher because in the last few years, because of the racial reckoning we've seen in the last two years, news organizations have put forth these mandates to reflect the communities that they cover and, and the world that we live in by, you know, certain amount of time. I think uh, NBC and Gannett, my former employer, have said 2025 is the time that they're they're looking to, you know, truly reflect reflect the communities. But it's tough because people don't see diversity for what it truly is, and that's the ability to tell the the full story. You know, it's interesting you say that 
you know, you have this problem in journalism where people don't respond to the diversity surveys. Um, and I think it's a problem across all professions. You know, I, I always say we, we, we count what we care about. And if we don't count it, that means we don't care. Um, and so, you know, we see this in the law. We see this, uh, you know, in higher education. I can't tell you exactly how many Black professors there are. I can't tell you exactly how many Black lawyers there are uh, because we can't get an accurate count. We don't count it because we don't care about it, right? And so, or if we counted it, it would expose some folks, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I still remember when I first started paying attention to that diversity census, finding out that there were newsrooms in this country that had completely white news staffs was jarring. You know, to think, you know, as a student, like I'm coming out into the, the real world and there are places where I'm not seen where I'm not represented and where I'm probably not expected. It's, it's a little scary. I mean, this is a white male dominated industry. And so to get to where I've gotten feels sometimes like a fluke, but you know, the, the, I think at the end of the day, you always hold fast to the belief that you did the work to get to where you are. Absolutely. You know, now what's, what's an interesting trend to me lately um, is what counts as news and what counts as journalism. Uh, so I would love to hear your opinion on who counts as a journalist. You know, journalist is so many things these days. At, at one point, you look for somebody to be out with a news, you know, a, a news tag on, on their chest and uh, pen and paper, maybe a camera. But you've got visual storytellers. You've got the reporter who's the man on the street. You've got data collectors. You've got coders. You've got programmers. There's so many people that work in this industry and just kind of put together everything that we do. You know, a columnist offering oversight. There's a lot of debate on whether a pundit can be seen as a journalist because, in, you know, in my opinion, uh, you can be a journalist without being a reporter. So that answer varies. <laughs> but, you know, what's the difference between a journalist and a reporter? You know, it, it really depends on what that other subsection of journalist is. I mean, you know, I've got friends who have evolved over years and started as reporters and have just become something different. You know, a lot of times a, a reporter is someone who is giving you straight facts. A journalist can be somebody who's weighing in with their own opinion, be it valid or not, as we've seen in recent years. You know, it. it you know, the reason I ask this question is one, I think about the bloggers and the social media folks who are disseminating information. Um, and, you know, the reason it matters is, you know, there are certain rights that come with being a journalist, but there are also certain responsibilities. Um, and so, you know, are, you know, are these, at, is there a trend towards classifying these bloggers, these social media influencers um, as journalists, in the same in the same way without any training without anything else of just giving them that classification i think you've got a lot of people who want to be seen as journalists who didn't want to put in the work you've got a lot of people who couldn't find a space to do the work and so it really gets murky when you try to figure out who's who and what's what i mean you know you think back to 2009 and the fact that the news of michael jackson's death was broadcast and broken by tmz and at that point, nobody really believed in the work that they were doing. 
but they had still been trying to push themselves as a credible organization. And I think for me, that was where everything changed. Um, you know, you've got the Perez Hiltons and, and the, you know, what was it? The, um, like I think about like Nicole Bitchy and people like that. And so you've got people who have found out what they wanted to do, but maybe not seen a space for it in, in the overall landscape and of just trying to, you know, kind of forge their own way. It depends on the person, though, still. There are some people who completely make things up. I was on YouTube last week, and there's this thing that just every video was a lie. And it's like, how do you continue to push this stuff? And I've heard people say, oh, I heard so-and-so died on YouTube. What? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And I think it becomes tougher when people feel like this is an industry that they can infiltrate without the background and, and you know, the knowledge base and just kind of taking people, you know, at face value. So, you know, what are y'all's responsibilities as journalists? Like, what's the difference between when I get on Twitter and I just drop an opinion, right? Or when I write an op-ed versus when you report a story? Like, what are, what are the differences in the responsibilities there? I think, you know, I always think about the, the, the first do no harm you know, for, for the doctors and others. Your job as a journalist is to deliver the news, to get it right. You know, um, a lot of organizations right now are about getting it first, but it's really about the accuracy of it all. For me, you know, if you're not accurate, then you're nothing. I had a professor tell me once, he said, you know, without credibility, you're nothing. And you build credibility through gaining trust and doing work that, you know, people will respect and that people can vouch for. You know, what I find interesting, you know, you mentioned Michael Jackson's death and TMZ. Um, and, and what I find interesting as a consumer of news is that when I want to learn about people of color um, and often black people in particular, um, I'm not going to look at The New York Times. Like they're often the last place. Um, I'm going to be on Bossip and TMZ and all of these other places. And, you know, knowing that they're not credible news sources, but knowing that if I want this information, um, you know, the, the black Twitter and that sphere is probably the, the best place for me to get it. Um, you know, how do you think that's impacted by the representation in the newsroom? Is it just that, you know, it's not interesting enough to be in a newspaper. It's not interested enough to be an MSNBC or CNN headline. Or do you think it's linked to that lack of representation that, you know, for Black news, I'm going to uncredible sources to get it first? But you know who says there again, you know, mm -hmm. who says that Bossip is incredible? I think the biggest thing that you'll run into on sites like Bossip is aggregated content, which more often than not, they got from somewhere else. You know, you can see the attribution, hopefully if they've done it right, somewhere in that piece that you're reading, I think we go to places like Bossip and, you know, Nicole Bitchy when, when it was a thing and B. Scott because, again, like you said, what they look like. These are organizations and individuals who have decided they're going to put us first in the grand scheme of things. And most newsrooms, uh, you know, newspaper, broadcast, digital, whatever, have still not come around to that and don't understand that, yeah, 
Representation is important because representation can be the difference for a lot of people between whether you believe the news or whether it's trash or whether it's told right. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, sometimes, and that's the beauty of being a Black journalist because you walk in with a different set of eyes and you may see that same story different from your white counterpart. You know, it's, you know, as someone who you now work for the Marshall, is Marshall Fund or Marshall Project? Marshall, the Marshall Project. Marshall Project. You now work for Marshall Project. Um, what's the difference between what you're allowed to cover and what you're allowed to write about um, with an organization like Marshall Project? Or is there a difference between what you're allowed to cover, what you're allowed to write about, um, how you're allowed to express your voice versus when you've worked for Atlanta Journal-Constitution and other you know, mainstream sources. Um, like, are you having to code switch as a journalist and, and taper which you do, depending on which outlet you work for? You know, and, and I'll tell you, I think this is the first job that I've had where I felt comfortable being as Black as I need to be in this space. I'm not a reporter anymore. And so as a manager, it's giving me the freedom to open up my Rolodex and say, hey, here are some people you didn't know existed. Here are some people, you know, my, my primary job, the reason that I came here is to begin the process of building out local newsrooms in cities across the country where the need for this work, and you know, we do specifically criminal justice reporting. The need for this work is there and visible. Our first newsroom is in Cleveland. I, you know, we announced the hiring of a, a, you know, an editor in chief last week. I'm interviewing candidates for reporting positions this week. And it's Cleveland, 65% Black. How do you go into a city like Cleveland with a newsroom that looks nothing like the community? And so I'm looking at talented candidates. And, you know, and at this point, they're still candidates. But, you know, once once we're, we're running with this, they'll be in, in position. And something tells me you're going to see a lot of color in that local network that we're putting together because, again, the cities that we're targeting and, and have, have gone to and had conversations with people look like you and me. And so it's going to be really important for that work to kind of reflect through who we choose to be in those newsrooms. I mean, it's, it's, it's never been more free. It has never been more appreciated when somebody tells you, I want you in this space because, and that's not been the case for my career because a lot of my career has been like most other black journalists and journalists of color who find themselves in a room where there are people who question why you're there because of your skin tone, not because of your ability, you know, and, and we're in this place where what we do in the Marshall Project newsroom, what I do matters. And they're looking for me to be as, as outspoken and as Black as I want to be and as I've always been. So, you know, it's, it's good. Yeah. I, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Marshall Project does over time because I even think about, um, you know, the way Ferguson is reported, the way that George Floyd is reported and, and the fact that you know, what does it take for it to become a headline story? And, 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 you know, to me, I, I feel like it's trauma porn, right? Like you need to, you need to be able to show this video over and over again, and you need to be able to show black trauma to report on the police brutality that's, that's been here and ever present. 
right? And and what would it look like if we still had black newspapers? And what would it look like if we had, you know, more black journalism? Would it would it still be at this point of exploitation, um, you know, of our pain? One of my colleagues calls it profiting from our pain. Um, yeah. Look, I, I mean, but you know, there are hundreds of black papers around the country. I think we've lost some of the more prominent, the Chicago Defender. Uh, hasn't been, you know, you've got the Philadelphia Tribune, you've got uh, papers in South Florida. I have a, a family rattler who owns several newspapers in the Dallas area. They're there and they're telling these stories. I think they're doing it to a different, uh, you know, viewpoint and audience, which means that you're not going to see them where you find your mainstream daily, but they're there. You know, I think there was a paper for a lot of, a lot of time in Charlottesville, you know? And so it's interesting to know where they are, but at the same time, it's the work that they're doing and they're finding themselves, you know, as, as free handouts or still 25 cent, you know, it's, it's, it's there, but you have to almost go and find it because at the same time, you know, in most of these cities, the majority of people don't look like us. And so you've got to sell it different. Now, I'd like to move a little bit into a discussion of journalistic responsibility and regulations. And the first thing I'd like to start with is a very hot topic, um, especially right now when everybody's talking about Disney slash Elon Musk and all these things. What are your rights and responsibilities as a journalist under the First Amendment? You know, look, um, it's it's simple, but it's complicated at the same time. I think the last few years have really clouded what people see as our responsibility and our job. At the same time, you know, like you said, the First Amendment protects the, the right of us to do this stuff. It's news gathering at its most core and basic levels, but it's truth telling. This is where, you know, you dig for information or you report what's being put out there from credible people and sources and documents and you just kind of go from there. I think the biggest thing that we do that nobody can really take away from us is that we're in the room where you're not. And sometimes providing you that information, you know, so that you can have it and be able to make your own decisions. You know, you're not going to attend every school board meeting. You're not going to attend every congressional hearing, but we are. You know, and, and what I find fascinating, um, you know, you're in these rooms and you're telling these stories. Um, and there's this trend recently, um, particularly with the Trump administration, of us learning things that would have been more valuable in the moment. Um, and, you know, there's been the buzz on Twitter. There's been kind of this, this hum of, isn't there a journalistic responsibility to report it at the time instead of holding it for your book project? or holding it for, you know, your opportunity to monetize. And I just love you to weigh in on, on, on this debate that seems to be happening when, you know, we get these McCarthy tapes and we get these, you know, Trump interviews from, from the book um, that came out recently. And it's like, dang, that would have been nice to know when we were impeaching him. Yeah. I I can't imagine holding information that's, immediately seen as important for longer than a couple of days. You know, you, you take the time to verify and validate what you found. And from there, 
it should be there for the world to see. Again, you know, our job as news gatherers is to, to relay that information. You know, it, it's strange that you've seen so many things. I think about the, you know, the the Woodward book a couple months ago, the, the you know, internal into the Trump White House and how all of that stuff, it was just like damning fact after damning fact. But where was this in real time? How do you hold this? I mean, they didn't they didn't hold deep throat. <laughs> but yeah. I wonder, you know, you know, what it makes me wonder is, you know, has the world just changed such that, you know, we have short attention spans? Um, you know, if I tweet about something today, I, I probably can't write a book about it tomorrow. Um, you know, Ronan Farrow managed to do it with Weinstein and others where he like wrote the articles and then wrote the book later. Um, but, you know, maybe it's just or I, I'd love to hear your opinion about that. Like, is it, you know, is it that the only way to make the money as a journalist is to hold the material? And there was a time when you could release Deep Throat, have Watergate, write the book five years later, and people would have a conception for it. Um, you know, it, are there some other things external that are just changing the way that, that y'all do your jobs? I think what we found in the last few years, especially when it comes to the Trump administration, is that it didn't matter. You know, and this is how a lot of people saw it. It didn't matter what you reported. People were going to continue to believe what they believed. And so I wonder if there was some thought process, especially, like I said, I used the Woodward book because that was, for me, one of the biggest examples as of late. But was there a wonder that this information isn't going to change people's opinions? Mm -hmm. And so why not hold it until? And then, you know, as, as it began to leak, I think we all saw that there was the the want for the information and, you know, maybe not on both sides, but I know I was excited every time I heard a new nugget because it was just like, gosh, that happened. But, you know, that's, that's how I like to get my news on a daily basis. <laughs> Is there any sort of oversight or commission out there that regulates what you do? Yes and no. I, you know, the individual organizations have their goals and, you know, operational procedures that are set up. But at, at the end of the day, we've got the tenants that we abide by and, you know, everything that's been laid out in the textbooks. But then, you know, the individual news organizations have a right to, to kind of, you know, finesse that the way that they do. You know, this is why you've got, you know, some, some partisan organizations that cover news the way they cover news. And, you know, and when those partisan organizations are, covering news the way that they cover news. You know, I've, I've noticed, uh, I watch a lot of MSNBC and CNN and those two networks seem to make a point um, and they kind of do it in a subtle way of like, this is a news show, whereas this is an opinion show. Like, and they will, you know, they change the way they describe the host. They, you know, name it something, like it'll have a name instead of just being news hour they are very explicit to me where I feel like I know when I'm watching news and I know when I'm watching opinion, um, you know, are you required to do that? Or is that just something that they have as a personal policy to try to make that distinction? I think it should be clear. You know, there's some, sometimes like, again, you know, my background is in, in newspapers. And so when we've got a columnist, you usually see that columnist's face It'll say that that person is a columnist. It'll lay out for you that, 
you know, and, and some go as far as a disclaimer that says that the opinion, you know, reflected in no way is the opinion of the organization, just the individual person. I think with the TV programs, it's somewhat of the same way. When you've got punditry, you know, usually it's it's a round table of folks sitting around and kind of leaning in on the news, but going in on what they think and their, their own, you know, deciphering of what the news is. It should be clear, though. It really should. And I think some people kind of, you know, blur those lines purposefully to make sure that, you know, there's there's a not a clear line between what's news and what's being given to you by pundits. I want to get into some more hot topics. And the first one I want to get into um, is my favorite cancel culture, because I don't think it's real. But that's my opinion which I'm, I'm going to make the distinction clear <laughs> that it is my opinion. Uh, but, you know, as a journalist, you know, let's say you're exposing a company or a public figure for doing something that is racially problematic. What does it take to report that kind of story and, and to actually have it get into print in a newspaper or a real publication? And why isn't that cancel culture? I think what people don't really understand is that when we come across something that we are now forced to prove in some way, shape or form, there are layers to that. You know, it's not like if you came to me and you said that somebody was racist, I couldn't run with it. I could. But for me, that would make me a bad journalist. What I do from there is, okay, who can vouch for this claim? You know, where, like, what documents exist that show examples? You go back and you find things to kind of back up and build that argument. It's all like a science fair project. You're starting with a hypothesis and then you're working your way toward the conclusion. And that sometimes can take months to do. And as we found in some cases, maybe even longer. But you can't just run with what you've got. And so I think when it becomes, you know, a question of, of, the validity and then cancel culture versus defamation. It's all about, you know, at the end of the day, the work that you do to prove what you're reporting on. And like I said, oftentimes there's a lot of work that goes into something as simple as a 500 word piece. You know, I I think people kind of have this perception that, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, you shouldn't say anything at all. Right. And it's like, you know, how dare the New York Times call this person a racist or how da- dare Ronan Farrow call someone a rapist or how dare, you know, X, Y, Z person call someone something. Um, when what I what I always find to be a good conundrum is, you know, if someone's arrested, you can just print that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's a public record and it's fine. Right. But right. But if I say X, Y, Z person is racist because and you run that down. Um, it still gets that cancel culture label as if, you know, the liberal media is trying to <laughs> cancel that person. And, you know, I, I love to hear like, how have y'all, how have you personally, or even the organization mm-hmm. you dealt with, you know, kind of dealt with, with this trend towards anything that is negative about someone um, in the mainstream, you know, either, you know, calling a school board's actions racist or calling X thing racist. Um, you know, it immediately gets that cancel culture label and kind of diminishes your work. And, and I'd love to hear how y'all have addressed that. I think the biggest thing is, that, you know, you ask, you ask that first question of yourself and of the, of the people who are bringing forth any allegations. Is it the truth? You know, did we do the work that was necessary 
to uncover and, and decide, you know, flat out that what somebody did, the actions of, you know, so on and so forth, was it racist? Did we prove that? If we prove that, and apologies for the storm, <laughs> but, you know, if we prove that, then there is no ifs, ands, or buts, and there's no way of getting around because, again, the truth is the truth. At the end of the day, you cannot fight with the truth. You know, was it try Jesus, don't try me. But <laughs> it, it is such a, a strange thing. But yeah, you start with that. You start with the truth. And then I think the reason that we do so much work to, you know, verify and validate the, the information that we've received is because you know these arguments are going to come. You know somebody's going to claim impropriety or that you're you're out you know out to wrong them or to cancel them or get them canceled whatever it is the work speaks for itself at the end of the day the truth will set you free and that's why we that's why we live and die on it now now how does the composition of the newsroom change the definition of truth you know i'm a lawyer truth is relative for us <laughs> right and i'm wondering you know is it the same in journalism where truth is contextual and truth is relative um, or can the composition of the newsroom change that definition of truth? You, you talked earlier about, you know, if somebody's arrested and charged, you can write that because it's there in the documents. I think for a lot of us, and especially people of color who have seen folks, you know, uh, railed on, on trumped up charges or, you know, charged with something that wasn't maybe exactly the case that's being laid out. There's, you know, and I'll just say, I think there's a journalist who does not have any type of investment in the situation at hand, who will write exactly what has been put in front of them and leave it at that, you know, and then there's a journalist who will say, this says resisting arrest, this says, you know, assault with a deadly weapon to inflict serious injury. Where's the narrative? What does the narrative say? How does the narrative, you know, directly like prove this point? You know, does the narrative say that this is the truth? I think we found that, you know, with the George Floyd narrative. I still remember the press release that was put out, you know, when George Floyd was killed, which we all, I think, can agree that George Floyd was killed. And the narrative made it appear that George Floyd had contributed to his loss of life. And then we saw a video that told us totally different. And so in a way, if you don't know, you know, if you haven't lived through seeing people killed who look like you, who did not deserve that fate, the way it comes out, you know, the way you intend to tell that story is going to be different. You know, I always, I always look at the folks in the newsrooms that I've been in and worked in and run. And I try to have deep conversations when it's something that they would have never experienced growing up or as a part of their, their walk at some point, because, you know, I can't hold it against you that you've never experienced the life that I've experienced. 
What I can hold against you was an, an unwillingness to see that there's a different take to this. And I think that's what we run into a lot. You know, is there still a blanket trust of, of police and, and what comes out of police departments post George Floyd? Because um, I personally, I've always been bothered by the idea of printing mugshots and writing up arrest records because I have a natural distrust of the police because of my life experience. So I really need a trial to believe that anybody has done anything. Um, and then I may not even believe the trial. Uh, but some people are like, oh, no, the police arrested them. This is what the police said happened. That is absolute truth. Um, and I'm wondering if George Floyd has changed that perception in the newsroom, because I don't see it changing in the real world. You know, I still see people taking an arrest record and a mugshot as fact. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if journalists have, have evolved at all on that point. Journalists are the real world. So mm-hmm. everything you see is everything I see in these newsrooms. You know, I still remember uh, 2020, as COVID shutdowns began, I was covering education in Atlanta and I had a superintendent tell me, most of the people who are not getting the homework, who are not logging in every day to these virtual lessons are black and brown kids. And, you know, for me, that meant something. This is, again, a responsibility that I take as a Black man to tell this story accurately, but also to kind of highlight what's going on so that people have the ability to make a different choice. You know, if you're at home and you read that most Black and brown kids aren't logging in, then you're like, do I want to continue to be one of them or or what is it? And sometimes people just don't want to see what's right in front of them. I think, you know, what we run into is in in these conversations around what is and what isn't is, you know, going back to the original point, you don't know what you haven't experienced. And, you know, so it's like, you can, like I said, so at, at the end of the day, you can see something different from what I see it as through the eyes of a black woman. I see something different through the eyes of a black man. There's a white man who sees the criminal justice system as a means to an end because he's never known anybody who was locked up or he's never known somebody who was locked up who possibly was innocent, but we have. And that changes everything. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think we all can probably tell our stories of, you know, this one time I was pulled over and X, Y, Z happened. I don't know a black person who doesn't have that story by the time they're 25 or so, right? We all, if not more than one of those stories, um, you know, to the point that it's like, I'm avoiding police. I'm avoiding interactions with them. You know, if I were the victim of a crime, I'd probably think twice, like it would take a lot for me to call the police. And I'm a lawyer, um, and a law professor and it's, still would take a lot. And so it, it, it just, you know, the, the fact that there are people who still don't understand that difference and that distinction uh, of what interactions with the police are like for us, um, even though we keep telling it, even though we, we keep, you know, reporting it and we'll still take police at their word, is just so troubling since we allegedly had a racial reckoning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, look, how many times have you found yourself being 
seen as the non-threatening or you're just not like the others. It, it's that, it, it's that and exponentially so because I think people expect that, you know, those of us who have quote unquote made it are in this weird space of, you know, unknowing or just not being aware of, of, you know, maybe we've had the same life that, you know, our our contemporaries who don't look like us in terms of color have. It's, it's, It's such a weird existence that I think people don't understand that, you know, I grew up in Detroit. And so, you know, I've, unfortunately, I've seen people shot, you know, not just for work. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's those things that play out that, yeah, I could go on and on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it is, you know, we're all unicorns, as I like to say. Um, and, and I think the hard part is that because we are in spaces we're not expected to be in, people think that that when we interact in every other space, people know that. And you know what I often tell my colleagues is, when I am pulled over by the police, they don't know that I'm a unicorn. <laughs> they just know that I'm a black person yeah. driving a car they don't think I deserve to drive in a place they think I don't deserve to be. And I am treated just like everyone else who is black. When Rayshard Brooks was killed in Atlanta, um, what was it? Same week, no, a couple weeks after George Floyd. So I think it was June 12th. If I'm not, you know, I'm I'm 40 now. So the memory sometimes. But I remember having a conversation with my boss, who was a black man. And I said, you know, what was it like the first time you had handcuffs put on? you? I didn't even ask him if he had ever, I expected it. And he had a story. The black man who sat next to me before COVID shut our newsroom, I called him and asked him the same question. You know, what was it like that first time? I was 34 the first time I had handcuffs put on me. I was living in Atlanta, you know, and and Dunwoody. One of the one of the, the you know northern area suburb. I think he said that my tag had expired. I had a temp tag on the, on a new truck, and he saw something in the system that said that my license had been suspended. Again, you know, you're standing outside and you're you're going through all this and. Yeah, it it just, you know, he put me in the car and he starts reading the screen. He starts telling me what's on the screen and I'm looking at the screen and I'm like, but there's a line on there that says that this was all cleared up. And he goes silent. And he gets out and he pulls me out the back of the truck and he takes the handcuffs off (laughs) and he pulls off. No apology, no but, you know, that, that's, that's the expectation that we live with. We are going to be treated different. So it's. it's yeah. 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 And I, I think people don't understand also that our communities are over policed. Right. And so, you know, I live in Charlottesville now. Um, Charlottesville is not an urban area at all. <laughs> you know, I could probably count on my hands 
the people of color in my entire subdivision. And, you know, when my, when my father stays with me, he's like, I never see any police here. He's like, how are the suburbs safe if there are no police? Because, you know, in Houston, I grew up in Houston. I mean, police, I mean, I see police. I can't go 10 minutes without seeing a policeman when I'm in Southeast Houston. Right. Right. When anywhere in the inner city of Houston can't go 10 minutes. Whereas I can be here for weeks and not see a police car. And yet police bring safety. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, there's too many convenience stores in Houston and Detroit for us not to see a police officer. So. Right. Every, you know, but we whole weeks and don't see you know, any police, I guess if the police are, the police's job here would be to keep me out. <laughs> probably <laughs> That would be their primary job. Uh, now, the next thing I want to talk about a little bit is, um, you know, the defamation angle, you know, every time a story runs about Donald Trump or Elon Musk, or, you know, one of the other kind of billionaires or faux billionaires, um, they love to say they're going to go sue for defamation, <laughs> right? They're going to mm-hmm. go sue the New York times for defamation. Um, and you know, what protects y'all from being sued or how do you get protection from being sued for defamation? Again, you know, uh, holding fast to the truth, um, believing in the fact that what you're telling the intent, the intent of what you write. I think a lot of times people don't understand that what we write is not what we feel. And so if you got this information from a source or, a document, and that's where you took, you know, a large part of your reporting. There's truth behind that that you're you're kind of holding on to to say, you know, this is why I feel confident in, in what I'm putting forth. There have been times, clearly, where people have had information and did not, you know, either verify or just went down a nasty road with one source who believed something and come to find out was not the case. But at the end of the day, the truth holds fast and it's, it's always protected me. I've written some stories that people did not agree with and I've gotten some calls at 4 a.m. because those people did not agree. And at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it, yeah, if you, if you respect the person, then you know the intent. I think at the end, you know, there are a lot of people out there, though, who can really sully the name and the credibility of our organizations and industry because they're not working as hard to make sure that the truth is seen in the work that they're doing. You know, now for our last segment, um, you know, I always like to speculate about new policies and what the future can hold. Um, so the first question I want to ask you is, you know, if you could wave a magic wand uh, and and have infinite access to funds, <laughs> what would you do uh, to get us better representation in the newsrooms? I think it starts with training. You know, you need people as young as elementary school. I was nine when a white teacher put in my head that this was something I could do. How often is that happening? So if you're not building a pipeline back then, you're not going to look in high school and see, you know, enough black people who want to go into journalism, people of color. You're not going to get those same people to go to college. You're not going to get those same people competing for jobs. And so what we find now is that the pipeline is is empty. 
You know, I get calls from people all the time because my former role with the National Association of Black Journalists was to help advocate for journalists of color in newsrooms and to help find people for jobs as they came up. It's hard to find people when they don't exist. Wow. And so, you know, I've, I've had a hard time in the last few months of trying to help people find editing candidates for leadership positions because they wanted to, you know, at the very least, diversify the, the pool and say, okay, we've got candidates who it's like, yeah, I don't know anybody. All my friends have taken new jobs in the last six months. And so, wow. you know, yeah, none of us are, are looking to go anywhere. So what do you do when, you know, the 10 or 12 people who are sort of, you know, in the in crowd, it's tough. Now, this is a good segue to the to the next question I have for you, which is, you know, what is it that people do if they want to become a journalist? What's what's the training like? What are the requirements? How do we increase your pipeline? So, again, you know, it's, it's, it's starting starting from the bottom, <laughs> finding folks early on and getting them interested in what we do. I think, you know, showing them the different avenues and options the fact that you no longer just have to be a good writer to be a journalist these days, to show people. I mean, we brought folks in to show them, you know, the programming side of, of the newsroom in Atlanta. And people were fascinated. These were folks who were in engineering and other degree-seeking areas, you know, not necessarily journalism. And so even, even you know, diversifying and recruiting from other schools, not looking at you know, the School of Journalism or the School of Communications and looking at your alma mater and just kind of branching out and saying, okay, who else will be good at this job? It, it's worked really well for me. I think, you know, going to conventions that are not the same conventions that I go to every year, because again, you get into the same traps that, that you know, the mainstream recruiters are getting into. You're going to the same five schools every year. You're hiring the kids from those same five schools but you're not branching out. You're not going to HBCUs. You're not going to trade schools. You're not going to, you know, prisons. We've got people who are formerly incarcerated on our staff who do some of the best work, some of the most impactful. And, and you know, it resonates because again, it's something different about telling a story from the place where you've been and you've experienced that it hits different. And so I think just kind of, you know, branching out and not being afraid to look for people and look at people who've got the ability to learn, but also taking the time to help people grow into this. If somebody tells me they want to be a journalist, I'm going to do everything I can to sit with them and talk to them and, and you know, grow them into what they want to be. There's also got to be a willingness because some people want the fame overnight. I tell people like Jamel Hill is a friend of mine. <laughs> No, you can't be Jamel Hill overnight. <laughs> now, let's say, you know, you're someone who, you know, got a GED and went to community college and you want to be a journalist. Um, how does that happen? Right. Do they need to go get a formal undergraduate degree? Do they have to go get a master's degree or are there ways into the profession that don't require, you know, a traditional formal education? 
It depends on the person. There are some people who do not need the journalism background to, to learn it and grow and into it. There are some people who you would advise to go into that program because, you know, maybe learning through that instruction is, is the thing that's really going to click for them. Reading, you know, being a, a consumer of the news, I think is one of the best things about journalism because once you get the handle of what it is and once you're able to break it down because you disseminated and ingested so much, it's, it's an easy sell. I mean, I've, I've had, I've had job candidates who, you know, had a high school diploma who were better than job candidates who had a master's degree. And it's all about what you do with that information that you take in because at the end of the day, and I'll tell you, there are folks with master's degrees who are like, well, I got a 3.9. Well, that's nice, but you have no experience <laughs> and you don't read the paper. So, you know, I just wonder what's what kind of has happened in so many professions is even though we know it is possible to do the good work without the, you know, Northwestern master's degree and the Columbia undergrad in journalism and going to the XYZ high school that is known for producing journalists, um, mm-hmm. even though we know that is possible. Um, when we look at the way job applications are listed online, or we look at the way, you know, things are posted, um, people who don't have those star credentials can get filtered out. Um, and, and so is there any effort in the industry to, to take those barriers off and to really take a more holistic approach when looking at candidates? Look, and you're talking about filtering people off. And I'll tell you, some some of the ways that we post things will will filter people off. Like the people will say, I'm not capable of that. Uh, you know, I had a, a situation internally here where we were, you know, we're hiring for uh, reporters for different parts of, of our organization. And sometimes it's taking away the words or the wording or the titles that have sort of played the process. You know, a lot of people in our industry, and again, the Marshall Project does a lot of criminal justice news and investigative criminal justice news. So you've got the investigative reporter and in journalism, you know, it's one of the most coveted titles that you can aspire to, but a lot of black and brown people don't get there. And because they don't get there, when somebody says we're hiring more more journalists and we're, we're looking for candidates of color, if you write that you're looking for an investigative journalist, candidates of color aren't going to apply. I wouldn't have applied, you know? And it was because I wanted to be an investigative journalist. And at one point, I sent a note with intention to an editor, and that editor never got back to me, and I never got the chance. I figured, you know, at that point, it was like, well, I guess somebody's telling me that it's not my time or that it's just not my lane. The first leadership job that I got, the title was senior investigations editor. So I leapfrogged that whole thing and ended up, you know, working on and and putting together with a team of reporters, award-winning investigations. So, yeah, sometimes it's it's just about breaking down that barrier, like you said, and, and saying, okay, how do I make this more inclusive for the people who should apply? How do I make this something that people who can do the work will see as something that they can attain. Sometimes it's as simple as changing a word, you know, in that job description. 
which is what I did. And I think we, we saw a lot of success in hiring for candidates by just saying that we weren't going to call it an investigative job. We were going to say that, you know, some previous investigative experience was necessary because you investigate regardless of what your beat is. I did a lot of investigating covering education. I just wasn't an investigative reporter. You know, what's interesting, what I'm taking from that is something that I tell students all the time. Um, You know, as people of color, I don't like the phrase imposter syndrome because it's it's not that we feel like imposters. Um, We get told a lot that we don't belong places Um, and that we're not qualified to do things even when we are. Um, and, And, you know, one thing I've been trying to communicate with my students, women and people of color even, is, you know, don't ever stop applying. Don't ever stop trying um, because I guarantee you, you, you'd be surprised at how many people apply for things they're not qualified for who don't look like us. We seem to think we need to be perfect when we apply. Mm-hmm. I mean, but we've, we've been taught that you should do this twice as hard. You should work twice as hard to get the same amount of what somebody else has gotten. And it doesn't always translate. It doesn't translate into everything we do. I mean, I I started teaching on negotiating a couple of years ago because I noticed that, you know, some of my contemporaries were leaving things on the table. It's like you think about that salary, but you don't think about the package, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's the same thing with the the work that we do and, and how we value or see ourselves. We're looking at one thing, but we're not looking at the package. Exactly. Which is, it's so exciting to see people when they, when it finally clicks in them. And they start looking at everything. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Now, what I want to let you do with our last few minutes is have, have shameless plug time. So <laughs> I will let you shamelessly plug the Marshall Project and shamelessly plug um, National Association of Black Journalists and let us know how to find those things, how we can donate money because everybody needs more, more capital. Um, you know, just just plug all of your things that that make you Marlon the Fabulous. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, this has been fun. I, you know, the marshallproject.org is our website. There's some really fascinating work up there now. Uh, the Cleveland team, before everybody got hired, uh, put together a series called Testify that goes into the court systems. It's For me, it's more of an explainer of things that you know, you wouldn't ordinarily ask somebody, but you need to know. Um, at Marshall Prods on on Twitter, M A R S H A L L P R O J. Same thing with me. I'm at Marlon A Walker, M A R L O N A W A L K E R on Twitter and Instagram. I think for me, donating to organizations like the National Association of Black Journalists the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, Asian American Journalists Association, so on and so forth, because I think everybody at this point has an organization is critical in continuing to carry the mission forward that reflecting the communities we cover is is an imperative. The Kerner Commission picked that up in 1968. Here we are 54 years later, and we're not even close. You know, if, if America has what, 12 to 13% Black residents, and we've got 7 to 8% Black journalists, we've still got work to do. And so those organizations are pushing forward. And so I would advise you to look at all of them. You know, it's probably nabj.org, nahj.org, aaja.org, so on and so forth. But 
they're always looking for the dollars and it, it helps and it goes a long way. It helps pay for advocacy visits. It helps pay for, you know, the, the staffing to do the work and put out the press releases and call people out and call somebody racist when they need to be called racist. Yes. Which is one of my personal missions in life is, you know, I'm always calling out the racist. Um, even when it gets me crazy death threats and messages on Twitter, I'm always down for calling out a racist. Absolutely. Um, and I will say um, for students um, and or prospective journalists, these organizations are your friend. They have conferences, they have interview sessions, they have training. Um, if you think what you want to do, no matter what you did before in life, is transition to journalism, look into these affinity-based organizations that are right for you um, because you might be doing double work. Like you might be doing unnecessary work because a, an organization is out there to help you. And find a journalist on social media. We're always willing. Yes, I will. I will attest to that. Uh, I would love to thank Marlon for joining me. He is a dear friend. Um, although he is from Detroit and not Houston, I still feel he is kindred. Um, and, you know, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are broadcasted, Spotify, Apple, on the Voice America Network, and on our YouTube channel. Feel free to reach out to me through emails on the show page, or you can find me on social media at Carlos C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.